Um, okay, so this is our, um, I'm just going to pretend, I'm going to pretend this room is full of people. There's like four people in this room. It's the crew, the skeleton crew to help me steer the ship. Um, but that's the thing. We turn the lights down real low and I have these lights up so I can't see anybody. So I'm picturing all of you. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to like pretend you're all here. I can, see, I can see first service and I can see second service and I can see where you guys are all sitting and I miss you. And uh, it feels nice to be preaching a sermon standing up again. This is um, Watermark uh, Virtual Church 2.0, and we're going to work our way to 3.0. This is, this is recording a live service, so we can work out all the kinks. Um, and then we're going to move towards live streaming the actual service so that when our state <coughs> gets its act together, we can add some people to this room. Um, but until then, uh, this is sort of, we're going to do our best to get better at this and better and better and perfect this. Um, this is our passage today. I'm very, honestly very excited to preach Standing up, I'm going to explore the space and move around and keep Michael on his toes. Okay, um, so I'm going to pray, and then we are going to um, dive right into. We're actually not going to dive right into this passage. We're going to come at this passage from a completely different end. Thank you, Mickey. I had some very salty food earlier, and I'm thirsty. We are going to do something. We're going to go somewhere else for a while, like really far away, and then we're going to come all the way back, and this is going to make um, a lot of sense what we're talking about today. So um, let's pray, and then we'll dive into this passage. Father, I pray for every one of our people, wherever they are, scattered about uh, throughout Tampa Bay, throughout um, the states. Um, I lift up all those who are listening from other states, from far away, um, I pray that somehow our community would bless them. Uh, we are all one kingdom, one church, one family everywhere. Uh, I pray that you'd be there with them as you are here with us uh, in this space today. Um, I lift up this sermon to you. Um, do what you will with it. Make what you will of it. I pray that I would um, be comfortable uh, in this space, that I would be able to focus and, and teach the things that I've studied that uh, it, would, um, it would connect and it, it would land and make sense. And that it would uh, open our eyes a little bit to the things that we need to see. Um, be with me, speak through me, and, uh, and do your way with us today, Father. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Okay. Now, in order to get where we're going today in Acts, I'm going to look here, in Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 10. In order to get where we're going today, um, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to crackle. It's going to crackle. Sorry. I'm just going to keep rolling, though. Um, in order to get where we're going to go today, we are going to go somewhere else first. We're going to go first back about 500 years, and we're going to talk about this guy, Plato. Um, and I'm going to tell a story that, that he wrote. You're probably familiar with it if you've even taken base-level um, philosophy. Um, Plato basically believed that philosophy was not this abstract, elaborate thing that was only for the elite. He thought that everyone should take part in philosophy. He believed that everyone... Um, could glean from it, that everyone could take part in it, and that it would make their life and their death better uh, through philosophy. And so in order to make this point, <clears throat> he tells one particular story in, uh, in book seven of his, of his masterpiece called The Republic. Um, incredibly long, beautiful, brilliant um, work of philosophy. He tells this one story in, books, in book number seven of The Republic about, about this, uh, this cave. And uh, you, you may have heard this. I'm going to retell it and give you some, some of the cliff notes. It's, read it sometime. It's quite beautiful. Um, so he tells a story of this cave, and he tells a story, sort of a story of this group of people 
who are stuck in this cave. And they've never been out of this cave. All they've ever known in this, is this cave. They were born in the cave. They were raised in the cave. They've never seen, uh, in this cave, it's incredibly dark. There's no light, uh, natural light coming in from anywhere. Um, so it's, it's most of the time pitch black dark. Um, but there is this fire that is burning behind them. And they can't turn and look at the fire. All they can see is the wall in front of them. The fire is for some reason hidden. Maybe they're strapped down. So all they can see is the wall in front of them. And the fire behind them is, is casting this bright sort of moving flickering light on the wall. And as they look at this, there is apparently someone who is making things pass in front of the fire that, to make sort of these shadows. Maybe they're holding them up on poles or whatever. And they're sort, of, they're sort of making these things pass by. And all kinds of shadows, chairs and sheep and flowers and birds, all kinds of things that, um, that pass by on the wall in front of them. And they've never seen the real things. All they've ever seen is the shadows of these things. And as they watch these shadows, they believe that these shadows are real. They're not shadows. And if you pay a lot of attention to them, they believe um, you will understand things um, and you'll succeed in life, and you will, they, they begin to develop these, as they pay a lot of attention to these figures, they begin to develop these very sort of sophisticated understandings and, and have these big conversations about these things, um, and they're trying to tell the story of these things and understand these things, and they're philosophizing um, about these objects that they only know appearing on this wall, and it's all they've ever known, so it's all that they can see, and so it's all they understand, and they believe that these things are real, and, they are, um, and that they are meant to tell them something. So over time, they grow quite sophisticated in these conversations. They grow very, very proud of themselves and their opinions about these things, and they can discern all kinds of truths and moralities and good things, beautiful things, about these shadows that they're seeing. And eventually, and quite on accident, one of them, stumbling around in the dark, breaks free of the cave and finds a way out. And he steps out into the light. And he steps out into this whole other world where he actually sees the real figure of the thing that he has seen the shadow of his entire life. And he's looking at the thing. And it's four-dimensional. And, and it's, he can touch it. And he can smell it. And it's got color and it's got shape that he never understood before. And it moves and it's, um, it sort of is vastly different than anything he's understood. And he sees the sun. He feels the warmth of the sun. And he sees, he sees chairs that people have made. He sees flowers. He sees trees. All of the realities of these things that he had only seen previously, like merely phantoms as um, as, as Plato calls it. He says, previously, uh, he had been looking merely at phantoms, and now he is nearer to the true nature of being. So he, he understands now, like, what it actually means to exist. and what He understands all of these new truths, which everyone in the cave has no concept of. And so he, he, at some point, ventures back into the cave. He climbs back into the cave at great difficulty, and his eyes have adjusted to the light, so he can no longer see. So he's kind of stumbling around, and the other people see him stumbling through the cave, and they think he's a fool. They're like, what is wrong with you? They don't understand what he's doing. He looks really quite foolish. Um, and then he starts talking to them, and he sounds even more foolish. But as he listens to them, they sound foolish to him. And both sides look at each other, and they think each other are complete fools because their understandings are different, their experiences are different, um, and they cannot grasp what he has seen. Um, and so eventually the cave dwellers become really angry with him because he is threatening their very sophisticated ideas that they've spent a really long time formulating and, and, um, 
and making sense of. And they love these things. And they've been teaching these things for decades to each other. And they've, they've developed these huge, sophisticated ethical moralities and, and philosophies about these things. And he's threatening all of it. And so what they do is they rise up and they eventually try to kill him. Now, Plato's great idea in the telling of, of the cave um, and his point in this entire story um, is that we are all born in the cave, that we are raised in the cave. We only understand the cave, but we don't understand the cave actually exists. We think what we have is reality. And, and then he explains um, his great idea is that we all start in a cave, but we don't have to stay there. But you can climb out of the cave. And he uses this to talk about philosophy and enlightenment. Um, and he says, but the problem with enlightenment is once you try to go back into the cave and enlighten other people, what you can expect is a hostile welcome waiting for you, unless you can be very patient with people. And he lays out this whole plan for how you can sort of enlighten people and walk them out of it. You can't just confront them with this idea that you've seen. Um, they won't understand it. They don't get it. And as you, uh, he says, so, so Plato's basic idea is sort of like this, using this Socratic method, right? Like um, walking them slowly towards this place where they can understand what it is that you're talking about and maybe come to these ideas on their own. Now, that is Plato's idea. There's this passage, though, in Hebrews chapter 8, that now that you know that story, I think can make a lot of sense to you. Um, so I want to read this passage. And what this passage basically is doing is, is uh, the author of Hebrews. We don't know who it is. I have ideas, but that's not for today. Um, the, the author of, of Hebrews is basically engaging in platonic thought in chapter 8. And he basically says that the tabernacle that Moses built to specific specifications, is that redundant? Specific specifications uh, is merely a copy of a cosmic spiritual one. So um, I'm going to read to you Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Read along with me. It says, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. That is why Moses was warned um, when he was about to build the tabernacles. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenants of which um, he is mediator, uh, I'm sorry, he is mediator is superior to the old one, uh, since the new covenant is established on better promises. So basically, um, he's saying that this earthly temple that the Israelites were worshiping in, were working in, we're spending their days three, three times a day in the tabernacle to travel with them that Moses designed and built to very specific specifications, um, that the, this thing that Moses had built, that the, the plans that he saw on Mount Sinai, um, that all of that apparently was a shadow of a real temple that exists somewhere else, um, and that everything that they were doing, this, this earthly worship, these the songs and these sacrifices, they were some sort of remote reflection of this real worship that looks different and has more dimensions to it. These earthly priests were sort of shadows of these real priests that existed. <sighs> these real priests that existed somewhere else. Um, that there was real work that real priests were doing, and that these priests that you see working in this temple were sort of like placeholders, and they were shadows of this actual real work that was going to be done in some other way that you cannot fathom yet because you weren't ready for it. But basically now he's saying you're ready for it, okay? Now, 
Um, there's two words that he uses here. So he says, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow. This word copy and this word shadow are important. Uh, there's this Greek, uh, Greek word, hupodegma. Everyone say, hupodegma. Yes, both of you. Um, it is, it's basically translated as a specimen, a sketch plan. And then there's this other word, skia. Skia. Yes, okay. Skia is a, uh, it's a shadow. It's a reflection. It's a phantom. It's a silhouette. And so the first century readers of this letter, they, they read this letter, they hear it read, and they understand what he's getting at. He's using sort of Gnostic Platonic thought, which they fully understand because Plato was only wrote 500 years earlier and everyone had read and understood and heard Plato. Um, they understand sort of what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. Um, he's using this clearly understood language of his contemporaries that they understood, and he's using it to tell them that everything that they had been doing up until this point was a mere shadow of a real thing. It was something... Um, that wasn't real, it was a placeholder, it was a shadow. But he says, basically, there would come a day when you would know sort of like these things. So you would know why you gave a tithe. It would suddenly make sense to you, the point of the tithe. Uh, you would know why you were commanded to love the foreigner and the immigrant. That there would come a moment where this exercise in the traveler moving through your land or moving in amongst you from a, a faraway place who was terrified and ran for his life and brought his family and they moved in amongst you, there is a, you one day you will understand why you were supposed to treat them a specific way. Um, you will understand um, why you were told to refrain from wearing the same clothes as everyone else. That one day this is all going to make sense to you. Um, I apologize for the crackling. I don't know what else I can really do about it there. Um, you will know one day why you were told to wear these, these weird clothes, why you were told to eat weird food, different food, live this holy life, this different life, um, and offer these um, different sacrifices from everybody else. One day there would come a moment when all this would make sense and you would see that that was all a placeholder. That was all a shadow. It wasn't real but there was a truth behind it all that you were meant to see because there would come a day when these real things would be done. There would become a day when these little, when you were getting together and singing your songs, you would understand suddenly they're like, oh, I know what this was about. I know why we got together in this building and we sang songs because it's about a collection of people gathering together and proclaiming one thing with one voice and one heartbeat loudly to the world this truth, and that one day this would happen, that the world would know what we're talking about. Um, we understand why, um, why we've been tithing, why we've been giving 10% of all of our income, because one day there would be a people that would, um, that would be descendants of us. There would be this, these people that, that would be basically these mind-bogglingly self-sacrificial people where, where God doesn't just own 10% of their stuff. God owns a hundred percent of their stuff, and they live sacrificially and, and radically generously and completely different than how those who went before them lived. There would come a day when the kindness to the immigrant and the alien in your land would be replaced with understanding that there actually is no alien at all, that there is no immigrant, that all of the land belongs to God, and we are all in the same space, sharing it as brothers and sisters, one people under God. This is, thank you. Uh, this is why, uh, this is why we, we practice this, because one day, this one thing, this shadow that we practice, the reality of it would be present. 
And this is why we practice this. There would come a day when all that stuff that makes you holy and different and set apart is replaced with the full understanding that you are actually really not one of them at all. That's why you've been dressing different and planting different kinds of seeds in your garden and doing different things and different prayers and eating different foods because you are actually one day going to wake up and realize you don't belong here where you're living with these, this nation and this kingdom, that you are actually a citizen of some other kingdom and that you are a foreigner and that you are different and that you should stand out because this is not your king and these are not, uh, this is not your kingdom. That one day the people would awaken to that. And according to the author of Hebrews, that was the whole point of the law and the temple and the commands to live differently and the tithes and the offerings. That was the point of all of it. Let's look a little farther. Hebrews chapter 8. Let's go to 8 through 10. It says, but God found fault with the people and said, These, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So he says, there's going to be a new people who are going to see everything differently. So when we get to the book of Acts, all the way up from chapter 1 to chapter 10, these shadows and these phantoms, as Plato calls them, have been being replaced piece by piece by piece by piece all the way up to chapter 10, the whole way. It started off in, in the upper room, in, uh, in the gathering there where the people are praying and they're waiting and the Lord has ascended um, and they're waiting and they're praying and suddenly there's this rushing wind and the tongues of fire fall upon the heads of all the people and they begin to understand what this means that the temple was a shadow of a real thing, which is the gathering of God's people, that they are the temple. The temple has been replaced by the gathering of humanity. They are living stones built together. And that the law that was on paper has been ripped off the paper and has taken the form of spirit. It's God and is placed in our hearts. And that we're following the spirit of God. No longer a law written down on paper. Um, and that the word, this thing that we had always followed, now becomes flesh and has dwelt among us and dwells in us. And that we walk through this world in a different way. And so one, piece by piece, one by one, these shadows of the old world are being replaced by the reality outside the cave. We were in the cave, now we've broken outside the cave because we followed Christ literally out of the cave of resurrection. And we now can stand there and we can see Okay, we can see exactly how things are supposed to be. And this has started to penetrate sort of the hearts and minds of human beings. Only a few, though, 12 specific people, um, and a few that are gathered sort of on the outskirts of the community, and other people are beginning to start to wake up. And Paul is one of the first ones to wake up. He's a Pharisee, and God meets him, and we've already told his story. But Paul, in, uh, in, Acts, chapter, in Acts chapter 9, he wakes up and realizes, oh, Gentiles are supposed to be a part of this. That all of this was leading towards that. 
Um, so they have lived on the edge of this sort of reality. They have been in the cave the whole time. And now the apostles find themselves on the edge of this reality. And they're stepping out and they're beginning to accept what they're seeing out there. That all of the ways that they have lived before that they used to live, that they were placeholders and shadows for these real things now. And this is the first generation that is awakening to these things and beginning to practice them. And they're beginning to see it. And so Philip meets this Ethiopian eunuch and understands now that everything was leading up to the moment where a person like this could be welcomed into the church. A foreigner, a minority, a slave, a sexual deviant, a eunuch, welcomed into the church as a brother, an equal. And then you have Paul who understands now, yes, the Gentiles are welcomed in. And now the same thing is happening with Peter. He's been on the rooftop. We talked about this last week and he has this vision and God comes to him and says, hey, all those things that were unclean, that was never actually about food at all. That was always about something else. And no longer should you call something that I have called clean, unclean. I call all of it. Everything that was unclean, I now call it clean. And now... Peter pushes back. He resists a little bit and says, no, 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 no. I can't do that. I'm a holy Jewish person. He says, but you don't need to be. That was never the point. We're doing something different. We're moving into the next thing. Make the leap out of the cave into the sunlight. Get to the next thing. And Peter's resistant because the hardest part of following God um, is, is transforming ritual worship. Because we love the ritual worship, but it's transforming the ritual worship into actual action there. Um, and as a pastor, I see this constantly. People really want to do church. They really, really want to do church. And they want to do the rituals. They want to do the songs and take communion. Um, and they want to do sort of the community outreach things and the serving. And they want to do all these things in the small groups and the Bible studies. So when you open the communion table, all the Christians are into it. We're there. I'm all about communion, and they're going to come, and they're going to line up, and they're going to take communion every single time. Christians from every denomination, from all over the place, they're going to come and take communion, all Christians together, black and white, men and women, rich and poor, because the ritual is good, and it's beautiful, and it's easy, honestly. It's easy to do the ritual, but when you actually take the ritual, the exercise, the shadow, and you turn and embrace what the shadow stands for, that's when people start to like push back like Peter did at first. They start to push back because you start to say, okay, we've gotten really good at taking communion. Now we're going we're gonna to turn from the shadow communion and we're going to do the real thing. We're going to allow our bodies to be broken and poured out for those around us. We're going, to, we're, go, we're going to welcome others to the table who have never been present at the table. Um, we're going to look them in the eye and see them as an equal, those that we've always lorded ourselves over. When you actually take the ritual, the exercise and the shadow, and you turn and embrace what it stands for, when you stand up against injustice and racism and bigotry and oppression and white supremacy, people get mad. It's like you've gone back into the cave and you're telling them this is actually about something else. And they're like, no, it's about this. This is all it's ever been about. And it's not about that. It's about this. And you say, well, I've been out of the cave and I see what the gospel can do for the world. And they say, this is what the gospel does. And you try to explain and they push back and they don't like it. And they get mad and they leave the community and find someone else who will once again make it ritual for them and say, don't worry about that. Let's do the ritual. Let's do the ritual. And God is calling you out of the cave to say the ritual is a placeholder. 
It's an exercise so that you can head out into the streets and do the real thing. And honestly, how blessed we are that the apostles were strong enough to actually go with it and say, okay, I'm going to leave behind everything I've ever known in the cave, and I'm going to venture off into this thing, and I'm going to do the real thing. Both Peter and Cornelius received this vision, these angelic visitors, and both of them are drawn towards each other by the Spirit of God, and they actually listen. And they want to keep doing the things that they were before, but they actually begin to listen because both of them are devout followers of God in different ways. Peter's full-on Jewish. Um, Cornelius is what's called um, a God-fearer. He's someone who has drawn near to Judaism, who worships their God, but won't undergo things like circumcision and stuff like that. If he does, that, then he's called a proselyte, a proselyte or a Judaizer, sometimes it's translated. Um, but right here, he's a God-fearer. He has, he's gone so far, but now God is calling both of them separately and drawing them towards each other into this entirely new way that has never existed. Let's read a little bit of it. Um, Acts chapter 10, verse 27 and 28. It says, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. Okay, this is where, this is where Peter tells us that he's, he's, he's left the cave, all right, and he's seen other things. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. And now they have to make a decision. And Peter's going to preach a sermon to them. We're going to talk about that next time. And they have to make a decision whether or not to trust this guy who's been out of the cave, who has seen the reality of what God is doing. Do they go back to the ritual again? Or do they go with him? Um, For some, God's greatest concern is that we do church right and that we do the tradition right, the right way. That is what their biggest concern is. You're doing church wrong, and we will confront you until you do church right. And that is their biggest concern of any of their concerns. Honestly, from my standpoint, what I have seen through this entire pandemic, um, I know we're all tired of talking about it. There's nothing else to talk about. Um, As we've been through this entire pandemic, the problem of the Christian response during this entire pandemic has been this, basically. People everywhere are freaking out about not being able to do church, quote unquote. Not being able to do church. Um, If you don't run in clerical circles, if you don't have like a lot of pastors as your Facebook friends, and especially pastors from different denominations, then maybe you haven't seen what I've seen, but I've seen the online debates that have erupted during this time about, about communion, about liturgy, about baptism. We have entire denominations declaring that communion is invalid when done over the internet, that you cannot do communion that way, that it doesn't count. We have entire, like, I, I, saw, <laughs> I saw this, uh, this priest, this picture of a priest, maybe you saw it, a priest standing back from a family having their child christened, and he's squirting them with like a super soaker, and he's squirting the baby with a squirt gun, and people are freaking out saying, that doesn't count, that you're not doing it right. The ritual is the thing, and you're not doing it right. And then we have people quoting Hebrews 10.25 that says, God demands that we do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So... Even if there's a pandemic, even if we're going to die, we cannot forsake the assembling because the ritual is the most important thing. That is all that matters is the ritual. And I kind of want to scream out and be like, the ritual only matters because they're intended to bring you to action. That's the only reason that we even have the rituals 
It's not about the rituals. It's about the thing it is teaching you to do. Most churches, honestly, most churches long before COVID were practicing invalid worship services for decades and decades and decades and decades. Why do I say that? Because, because we gave 10% of, of all of our giving, we gave it to the church. Every, every, everything that we made, we gave 10% of it, and then we moved on with life. But we never actually became generous people that understood, oh, oh, God actually owns all, everything of mine, and I'm a steward of it. And I'm supposed to use every dime that comes through my fingertips to establish the kingdom of God. Um, they never actually became generous. And we, we preach sermons, you know, about, about grace that cover our sins. And then we see, we see the poor and we talk about them, you know, we, we sit, we, man, we preach and we sing about grace. Like, I'm a sinner, I've done terrible things, but God is good and he's graceful to me and I've got the grace of God and I'm forgiven. And then we, we talk about the poor and we say, it's their own fault. They made the choice. Let them suffer in it. Like, we're holding on to the phantom and the shadow as if that's the thing that God is doing. And there's an actual real thing that God is doing, which is lifting them up and giving them grace no matter how they got there. That's what a lot of the law was actually geared towards. You can't read about the law of Jubilees where every 50 years, every, every speck of debt is forgiven. You can't read about that and see that God is doing something radically different in the world than every other society and every other king. None of that would fly in America. None of it. Um, we, you know, we serve communion constantly, but we, we never sacrifice, we never actually sacrifice ourselves for the world around us. We love the ritual. We hate the reality. We embrace the ritual and we push back against the reality constantly. We sing songs constantly about how glorious and powerful our, our heavenly king is. And we sing these songs and they go on and on and it's endless. But then when we get outside, um, we, we go out and we center our lives upon the praise of our earthly kings and our presidents and our prime ministers. And we get all wrapped up in their thing after we just spent a whole morning singing about our king and the greatness of our king. And we just leave it here as if it has no bearing out there. Like he's not our king out there. He's not our leader out there. And so long before COVID, I know we're, we're debating now, like, like, you know, how do the rituals work during a pandemic when people can't come together? I, I think we need to accept the idea that the rituals, the rituals have been misplaced for a very, 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 very long time. And that we have to rethink these things. And we have to somehow come to grips with the fact that, like, we have been doing the endless rituals and very little of our lives has actually conformed to the reality that the rituals are pointing to. Ultimately, our religious rituals are not the point of Christianity at all. Imagine being one of the ancient Jewish people and seeing your temple wiped out and destroyed. There's only one temple. It is the only place you can do what you have been doing. It is the only place you can offer the sacrifices. It's the only place you can get made right with God, where you can meet with a Levitical priest, they can pray over you, and you could be reunited and have your sins forgiven and, and made whole again, made clean. Imagine watching this thing burn to the ground and then asking yourself, what are we going to do now? There was only one. How are we going to do this? How are we going to practice this? How could we possibly do this? And then, and then Jesus' apostles stand up and they proclaim, they proclaim the passage that we know and love. Don't you know 
that your body is the temple of the living God, that was never, that was never really where God intended to dwell. He intended to dwell when the people, and when he says body, by the way, he's not talking about you personally, your personal body. He's talking about the body of the people, the church gathering. He says, you can stand and complain that you can't gather at your church. You can stand and complain that you can't do the rituals right. But I want you to know, none of that can actually stop you from doing the work God has for you to do. None of it. It was never about any of that. And maybe all this is necessary. Maybe all this needs to be put on hold. And maybe we won't get it back until we actually learn what it's about. Um, I mean, you do know that the church is temporary too, right? Like, the church is not a permanent thing. The church will eventually go away. When the work of the church is done... And the reality of the world shows up when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. That de- but when the world wakes up and realizes that Jesus was right and he's king, that day will come and the church will cease. And then we will even more realize that this was never about the rituals. It was always about the kingdom being made near. There's a time and a place, and you grow out of these things, and you move into the reality. These are, these are stepping stones. It's sort of like when I was a kid, my mom would look at me, and I'd go to cross the street, and she would say, no, 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 Tommy, don't cross the street yet. And she's on the other side, and I'm there, and I want to come to her, and she says, no, 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 you can't cross the street yet. But that did not mean that I can never, ever cross the street for the rest of my life. I'm waiting for the moment when the traffic is gone, and now the time has come to cross the street and enter into the next thing. It was never supposed to be just stand there and wait. It was always supposed to be a moment where we graduate into the next thing. The church that speaks with great sophistication about the worship and does not embrace the realities of God's universe that exists all around us will fade like a flower, will absolutely wither and fade and get scorched in the sun. The church is is a cave. The church is the place where we come and we practice the rituals like shadows on the walls that point to the realities outside the doors. And so there was this moment where Peter awakens and he embraces the Gentile and makes the person who has always been on the outside his brother. And this was never possible without the ritual and without the life lived in the shadow, in the cave, but now he has stepped out into the outside and he realizes all of this. And you guys, my biggest fear is that when this is all over, we'll come back together and my microphone won't work. No, we'll come back together and we'll just go back to practicing the rituals again. And we'll just talk in sophisticated language about the shadows. And we will ignore all of the things, the actual things that the rituals represent, that the sacraments represent, that communion represents, that baptism represents, that marriage represents. These things are all about something else. And we spend all of our time trying to do these things while God's children are suffering outside the doors. 
and I pray and long for the day when these things are replaced by the actual actions. When we come and take communion, we understand that we have spent the whole week allowing ourselves to be broken and poured out for the world around us. And so then when we come to the table again, it's sort of like a pause and a release. and a freedom. The worship gathering is the cave. The liturgy, the liturgy is a shadow on the wall. There is a reality that is calling us into the sun. When you try to explain it, for those of you who have been doing the work, you've noticed when you go back into the cave and you try to explain what God is doing outside the walls of the church, they shun you and they try to shut you down and they try to draw your attention back to the inside, back to the liturgy back to the sacraments. And they say, none of that matters. Pay them no mind. Go back out of the cave. Keep doing the work. Come back in and check on everybody. Keep inviting them out. Some of them will come. When you try to explain it, they're going to think you're crazy. They tried to silence the prophets. They tried to silence Jesus. They tried to silence his apostles. And they will likely try to shut you down too. And they will try to sell you shadows again. But you know better. And you know that the kingdom of God is at hand right now, all around us. So for now, we're going to take communion, and we're going to work out all the kinks for this thing over the next few weeks. But we're going to take communion. There are two elements to communion. There is, there is wine, and there is bread. Um, the bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for you. The wine symbolizes the blood of Christ poured out for you. The point of communion is not to take communion. The point of communion is to show you how healing and salvation enters into the world. And so we take the wine and we dip the, uh, the body in the blood. And we do this to remember the things that Jesus did for us and invites us into now. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for our people. Encourage them and guide them, bless them wherever they are. Allow them um, during this time of, of, of being without the ritual, show them how they can practice the reality that the ritual represents. That the actual church means something different and bigger. It's a kingdom. It's a worldwide kingdom with a king and a citizens, a law and people. Remind them what communion is about, what baptism is about. Existing in a whole new way, being reborn into this whole new life. Remind them of what all of this is about, the singing, that there's a group of people that are part of a different kingdom proclaiming their king in the midst of a whole other one. May that fall upon us with a lot of weight this week. May we practice it again. Keep us all safe. Bring my brothers and sisters back to us. We love you, Father. In your name, amen. We're going to end today um, with our collect prayer. If you would uh, pray this with me, I'll have it up on the wall. Let's pray. God, who reconciles all things to yourself, who came to dwell among us, teach us to love as you have loved us. May we let go of the lies embedded in us and replace them with your truth. 
May we be bold in protecting the weak, speaking for the voiceless, and standing against injustices wherever it occurs. May we recognize the Imago Dei in others, treating them with dignity and respect. Help us to forgive freely, reconciling us to each other in a chaotic world. Let us bring peace, bringing your kingdom to earth in the name of Jesus. Amen. Grace and peace, Watermark. I love you all. Um, I miss you all. And I'll see you again.